thing which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello. How are you this morning? Can you all hear me? Great. So this morning, I want to talk about the wonderful gift that is confession and how the Holy Spirit leads us in this all the days of our life. We'll be actually taking our lesson from Psalm 51 this morning, but I wanted to start with that amazing truth that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. To really learn about what confession is, I want to focus on this beloved, famous, humbling, convicting and encouraging psalm. And to preach it is no easy task. In fact, it's very challenging. So this morning, I don't know, uh, I know that you don't really know me, but I would ask for your grace and Christian charity as we lean in and see what the Spirit of God has to say to us about it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? So it's with that preface that we are going to walk through this incredible psalm. But first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we are able to be gathered here this morning. 
Lord, we are here to hear from you. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit soften our hearts and renew our mind from the truth of your word, that you are a loving and merciful God who loves us so much that you sent your only son. Lord, please open the truth of the scripture that it may not stay in our hearts, but sink into our hearts deeply and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, before we go into Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles this morning, you might see that um, the author has given us a little bit of context, which is very helpful in the Psalms. Um, so, before we read it, we need to understand the context in which it was written from. Uh, you'll see before Psalm 51, it says, uh, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So the depth of this psalm and David's words and the heart that comes out is the context of 2 Samuel 11. And instead of turning there, I'll just give you a kind of um, a bird's eye view of what has happened. So King, so David, king of Israel, who was meant to be an example of God's goodness to his covenant people, was one day walking out on the roof of his palace. He happened to catch sight of a beautiful woman bathing. He inquired about her and found out that her name was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, a soldier. He desired her, and later, through certain events, she was made pregnant by King David. And there's debate around uh, surrounding whether uh, that was a consensual act or not. In an effort to conceal his sin, David summoned Uriah from the army, who was faithfully serving his nation on campaign, in the hope that he would come home and be with his wife and think that the child was his. But Uriah was unwilling and wanted to abstain from any sexual conduct um, while in active service for his nation. Instead of going home, he, he um, chose to remain with the palace troops. After David's repeated efforts to convince Uriah to be with his wife, the king gave the order to his general, Joab, that Uriah should be sent back to battle and be placed on the front lines where Uriah would more than likely be killed. David, this is a sickening turn of events, but David had Uriah himself carry the message that would lead to his death. After Uriah had been killed, David married Bathsheba. David's actions were so offensive to the Lord, he sent his prophet to rebuke David. After relating a parable of a rich man who took away a little lamb from his poor neighbor and stirring the king's anger against the unrighteous act, the prophet applied the parable directly to David's action with regard to Bathsheba. Bathsheba's first child to David was struck down with a severe illness and died a few days later after birth, which the king accepted as punishment. The prophet Nathan also saw that David's kingdom would be punished for this murder. So it's in light of that uplifting story that we now turn to Psalm 51 and read these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you may be justified when you speak, and you are blameless when you judge. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow." Make me to hear the joy joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And we'll stop it there for our particular message this morning. So what we see, first of all, from this psalm is that sin is very serious. David draws our notice to this in different ways. He says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, he says, Uh, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He goes on to say, I have sinned, I have done evil. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So what he's showing us so clearly is that sin is offensive. Transgressions, iniquity, evil... Sin are all different words to express the seriousness of what David had known that he had committed. David knew he had rebelled against the divine law of God. In Psalm 51, we learn of the nature of what sin does in two ways. First, it neglects God's law. Verse 4 says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, we can look at that, and we know the background of the story, and then we read this psalm, and we say he's obviously sinned against people as well, but that's what's so incredible about the heart of the psalm. You might think the most serious consequence of our sin is the harm that we cause on someone else, like a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, or even in this narcissistic age ourselves. But as we read, that's that's simply not biblical. The worst consequence of our sin is the fact that we have disregarded the God of the universe. Our offense to him is the primary problem of sin. And David isn't here making excuses for what he has done. 
And this is the place that we all need to come to to see our sin for what it is. It's outright disobedience to God himself. Remember I asked for grace this morning. Just let me get through this first part. There's something called the gospel, (laughs) the New Testament. See, when we sin, when I sin, we are rebelling against God himself. Now, as we know, that's obviously not all that is involved when we sin. It destroys relationship. It destroys others. And the effect of David's sin leads to the murder of a friend, to a wife losing her husband, and ultimately the death of a child. So not only is sin serious and offensive to God and man, it is far-reaching. David's psalm doesn't start with, oh yeah, the other day, Lord, I kind of stuffed up. He has a much more deeper and comprehensive understanding of sin. He knows that sin goes all the way back to when he was conceived. In verse 5, we read, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not referencing something that his mother did here, like an immoral relationship but referring to a reality that affects every single one of us in this room from the moment that we were conceived. We can read more about this in something called the doctrine of original sin. But basically, we understand that we were born into sin. We are born with rebellious hearts against God that are positioned in such a way to rebel against God and destroy others because we were born in Adam. And it's not just occasional sin, but it's in all that we do because of our fallen nature. I already see it in our three-year-old daughter. We give her rules and she just wants to break everything we say to her. We, we say, you know, don't, why don't we want you to run across the road and not look? It's because you'll get hit by a car. We do it for her own good, but her rebellious nature needs to test everything that comes from authority. So we can see that sin is persuasive. David says in verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Sin is with us all the time. And as we can see, its desire is for us at any given moment. The great Christian apologist Ravi Zachariah says of sin that it will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. We see how sin started in David's life, with a walk across the roof of his house and a glance at a woman. This is why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. For it is profitable that one of your members should perish, then your whole body be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is profitable that one of your members should perish, then for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And it sounds so extreme what Jesus is saying, but it makes sense. David Platt Uh, comments on Jesus' words here. And he says, if David knew what was going to happen and the disastrous effects that would follow and wreck so many lives, if he had the chance to do it all over again, I think he would rather have had no eyes. And this is the point of what Jesus is saying. Take radical measures to guard yourself against persuasive sin that appears so innocent 
and harms so quickly. And Jesus is doing something here. He's, he's using a hyperbolic phrase. To, to use a modern example, we might say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. He's, he's really pushing the point. Sin is so dangerous. James, in his epistle to the church in Jerusalem, writes, Each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. And this is why our minds are so important to keep an eye on. What are we dwelling on? What are we renewing our mind on daily? Sin appears so innocent, it harms so quickly and controls so rapidly. Small sin numbs us and then we become desensitized and when we start to spiral out of control, we excuse it. In David's case, a lustful look led to adultery, adultery to lying, lying to murder, which led to the death of an innocent child. So we need to conclude this about sin in this first truth. It's serious, it's offensive, it's far-reaching and persuasive. It was a serious problem in the life of King David and it's a serious problem in the life of you and me. We might judge it to be small or slight, but according to an infinitely awesome God who loves us, sin is deadly serious. And as Jesus says, it has eternal consequences. Are you still with me? That's the first truth that the psalm teaches us. But thank God for the second truth. God is gracious. God is gracious. Just as David used different words to describe his sin, he uses different words to describe God's grace. Verse 1, have mercy on me, God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Then he asks, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Hebrew idea behind um, this washing, this ceremonial washing, is to be literally unsinned. Doesn't sound very good in the English uh, language, but to be unsinned. And the utter insanity of this request should astound us. Let me explain why this is insane, what he's asking for. David has committed two sins that under the law of Moses provide no room for forgiveness. What he has done is essentially unforgivable according to Mosaic law. Adultery and premeditated murder, the penalty for even one of these was death. And David has nothing to offer God, not a thing. David knows that he deserves death and that there is nothing he can do to make himself clean. So he appeals to nothing else but our Lord's mercy and grace. And the words of Exodus 33 must have been echoing through his brain as he prayed this. As God said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. David knew that such mercy and grace came at a cost. For any sin to be forgiven, 
It is costly because it involves the sacrifice and the death of a substitute, of something else dying in your place. And then David does something that is really bizarre in verse verse 7. He asks God to purify him with hyssop. We don't have time to, to deeply go into this today. But hyssop was a plant that was used by priests to sprinkle the blood of sacrificed substitutes to sanctify and to clean things and to make them holy. David knows that he deserves death and that if the consequence of his sin is to be removed, then the penalty must be paid by something else. And that's why we can't leave Psalm 51 in the Old Testament because we know that this is a picture that he is appealing to someone so much greater than the blood of an animal. Hebrews 9 and 10 clarify this for us. Hebrews 9 says, For when Moses had taught every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. Likewise, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of worship with blood, and according to the law, almost everything must be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say that Christ has appeared once and for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by sacrificing himself. And he goes on in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way that he has opened through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse them from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the gospel is that God became man and he came to dwell among us. And he lived a completely sinless life. He was crucified for our sin, and three days later, he rose from the grave, only to ascend at the right hand of God the Father, where he will come again. In our sin, we can only approach God through the sacrifice of another in our place, and it is only because of God's costly sacrifice that his forgiveness is completely free. There is nothing we can do to earn it. This is the wonder of God's grace this morning and his mercy. We stand in in front of God, guilty in our sin, and he is justified in his judgment of us because we are all guilty and we should receive nothing but wrath. But in his mercy... In his amazing mercy, he makes a way for us to be cleansed of all our sin through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus.
How can you and I be clean in front of God? How can the full penalty for all our sin in all their filthy, persuasive, utterly all-consuming, destructive tendencies be wiped completely away? This is where the psalm reveals an incredible, wonderful truth to God's people. And confession is the connection. That's what this entire psalm is about. It's the acknowledgement of who we are in the light of an almighty, all-consuming, holy, amazing God and earnestly seeking forgiveness with nothing to offer him. But the good news is that he is gracious. So what is involved in confession? Well, first of all, confession involves honesty with God and ourselves. David is honest and transparent. He doesn't blame others for his circumstances, as I know I can so often do in confession. I mean, if we look at our first parents, not that I'm saying we should blame our first parents, but if we look at them, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve, being a good Pentecostal, blamed Satan. David says in verse 16 and 17, If you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it, you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise these things. David isn't making light of the sacrificial system in this psalm. David knows that sacrifice is important. But he also knows that this is an outward ritual that reflects an inward reality. He can't just offer a burnt sacrifice. Something radical has to happen on the inside. Something has to happen to his heart. The path to God's grace is honesty with him. If we live an outward ritualistic life and there is nothing happening on the inside, that is a sure way to be living a joyless, defeated Christianity. So confession involves humility. We see this in the whole message of Psalm 51, the king of Israel coming before his God and saying, I've sinned against you. I've rebelled and my sin is ever before me. I can't escape it. I need you. There is nothing I can do. This is only something you can do. And this is the key to what sets Christianity apart from every single religion in the world. You're not required to repeat this many prayers, read this many passages, stand on one leg, say a bunch of Hail Marys for this many days. It is simply coming to God with a broken heart, coming to him in humility. It is simply confessing that, Father, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. I need you to make me clean in Jesus. And when we come before him 
like this, either for the first time in our lives or on a daily basis, we find the beautiful promise in this psalm that God is always gracious. One of the best verses in the Bible is the passage that we read out at the very start. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The New Testament saint, you may have seen this in Psalm 51, that he says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The the New Testament saint needs to never pray that because we have been washed clean. We have been sealed for eternity by the Holy Spirit, never to believe, never to be left or forsaken. And we can read that in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. What amazing news we find here by trusting in divine grace, by casting yourself before him in confession, we will find his mercy, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And some of you need to hear this this morning. No matter what you have done. The Bible verse says, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But still our pride can say, what about, what about, what about this, what about that? What have I... The word of God says all unrighteousness no matter what you've done, there is forgiveness. Why is this so important? It's it's important because restoration to God is the result. God recreates our heart. David knew he was sinful to the core. His heart was sinful. And we see this when he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David isn't looking for a clean slate, but for God to create a clean heart to to change him at the very core of who he is. And this is where we can fall into the trap of saying, God, I'll try harder next time. I'll do this next time. I, 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 I will do this for you next time. That's how I started my Christian life, always trying to rely on myself, and it's the beauty of God's grace that reveals how he has saved us, that he has forgiven us, that he has given us his Holy Spirit, and he's renewing us daily in our minds, and our our hearts have been recreated. And that's the point. We don't need to try harder. We need a new start with a new heart, and this is exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We have this promise where Paul writes to the church, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. Look, all things have become new. It might be your first time, or it might, you may have been walking with the Lord for a long time, but God restores our joy in confession. When we sin, when we disobey God, we hinder fellowship with him. 
which is we have seen, which we've seen produces results in our lives that we simply don't want. Living a life with concealed and unrepentant sin makes us feel like defeated, broken people. It, des- it, it destroys, it robs us of our joy. And David's words mean so much here. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Confession of sin always leads to joy in God. I wouldn't be honest with you this morning if I didn't say some effects of sin don't go away. Does that make sense? The effects of sin. There can be consequences this side of eternity. But let me tell you this, that the ultimate effect of that sin has been dealt with and paid for by Jesus Christ for all eternity. Past sin can cause present pain, but even in the pain that you might be going through today, you can know, brothers and sisters, that in Christ, because of his sacrifice, you have been restored to God for all eternity, and that is the joy of our salvation. And when we're living in that reality of what Christ has done and knowing who we are in light of what Christ has done and living in that joy, God witnesses to the world through our testimony that we become lights in this world. When you have tasted the sweet restoration with your Father who who has created you for relationship, like David, we will say, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. If we really believe what this psalm teaches us, that all our sins are forgiven, that whosoever comes to God will be restored and in right standing because of the blood of Jesus, then this is quite simply the greatest news in the world and all people need to hear it. And it will be coming from you. So, as we wrap our time up today, the psalm teaches us a new heart, joy, and God's witness to his grace in and through us leads us to an amazing result. That's worship. Amen. Worship is the result of confession because we've been reconciled to our creator. Like David says in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. To worship God in spirit and in truth is the result. So when we know that we have sinned against a an almighty, holy, amazing God, and that by his grace, he has wiped away all our sins, past, present, and future, through the sacrifice of his son on the cross, then worship will be the overflow of our life. If you've never come to Christ, then please consider these words that you've heard this morning. Jesus says that he was sent into the world and that who
whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. If you are living in secret sin, I can tell you this morning that it is robbing your joy. Confession is the pathway to God's grace. And he is the only one who will forgive you your sins. But he is a God of grace, a God of love. And you will find reconciliation. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Powerful words, and we've got some really powerful words coming in our next song. Uh, Turn to page 11 on your worship folder and stand together as we sing.